We looked last week at an Old Testament prophecy, very obscure, Genesis 49.10. We saw, among other things, that the line of the Messiah would be in the house of Judah. If we move to 2 Samuel 7, we find that it is through the line of David. Now, that truth and reality that it will be from the house of Judah, the house of David, is underscored in this wonderful passage which, with which you are familiar, Isaiah 7:14. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, and even though the entire chapter is important for what we have to say this morning, we will read the first 17 verses. But first, let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, we rec recognize that by nature we are irreverent, that by nature we indeed are totally depraved, that by nature we have no desire to know the true and the living God. But how thankful we are for the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and that now we find developing within our hearts through the sanctifying work of the Spirit an increasingly reverent heart, that we want to bow with reverence and awe before the name of the living and true God. We want to turn to the Word and to submit to the Word of God and its authority over our lives. And we want to find Christ on every page and to hear the prophetic utterances that pointed to the Savior's birth and even to the Savior's death for us and resurrection and even ascension as are found in the Old Testament. Father, as we do so now, we also pray that the people of God will grow in their understanding of this text and of Holy Scripture, but also that our minds and hearts may be moved by the truth and reality that the God to whom we pray and whom we have come to know through grace is a God with purpose and plan, and that plan will always be fulfilled, and the salvation of the people of God is secure. Father, for those who may be here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, it is right that every heart that has been saved by grace pray for grace for others. Submitting our will to thy will, thy will be done, we pray that there would be none in this room lost, but everyone saved. We ask, Father, that Jesus Christ will be exalted, and we are thankful for the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14. Deeply thankful. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We begin reading in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 7. This is the Word of God. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, 
and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the sons of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tavil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your house and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, Isaiah, this 8th century B.C. prophet, in chapters 7 through 9, prophesies of the coming of Christ. This section of Scripture is sometimes called the Book of Emmanuel. I suppose there's nary a text that is more disputed than Isaiah 7.14 especially in the hands of unbelieving critics. However, the main lines of its thought and the essential meaning are very clear if we come with believing hearts and we compare Scripture with Scripture. And then we will understand it and we can live upon one of the most blessed prophetic passages in all of the Word of God. And as we come to this text, we see first David's house threatened. David's house and lineage threatened. There is an attempt here to eradicate David's house, the line of David, the line of the Davidic kings. And of course, underneath it all, we can discern a satanic plan to do away with the promise of the Messiah through David's line. Will God's plan be fulfilled? Will his redemptive purpose for his people be somehow derailed? Well, Syria and Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom of Israel, joined together against the southern kingdom of Judah through whom the Messiah must come. And they are far more powerful 
humanly speaking, than tiny little Judah, threatening to eradicate the line of the Messiah and the house of David. In verse 6, literally we would read that they want to come and tear apart Judah. They would not spare Judah at all. They would supplant David's house with a heathen king and lineage and place a puppet king. Rezin and Pekah would place a puppet king that would rule Judah. We read of that in verse 6, the son of Tabeel. We're not sure who that would be, but undoubtedly a puppet king that would have been established. What does God say about this? Should the house of David fear? Should Ahaz fear? Should God's people fear? God says in verse 7, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. So what does God the Lord do? He sends his prophet Isaiah to faithless king Ahaz. Ahaz, of course, the grandson of Uzziah, the son of Jotham, who were noble kings. Ahaz was a wicked, irreverent, idolatrous man. He revived the worship of Moloch in the valley of Hinnom and even sacrificed his own sons there. God himself nonetheless comes to Ahaz, who is of the house and lineage of David, and he comes to him challenging him to ask for a sign. We find that in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. And he refuses that sign as if he's a pious man. Oh, I can't do that. I would be putting the Lord my God to the test. No, God himself offers the sign. It would not be putting the Lord God to the test but as if he did not want to put him to the test, and as if he were pious, he feigns piety. And when in reality Ahaz was an unbelieving and wicked man, though of David's house, we learn from 2 Kings that this man already is operating on his own, apart from seeking the will of the Lord, from 2 Kings 16, that he secretly has turned his kingdom over to Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. In this context, of course, God sends Isaiah and finds Isaiah, as we just saw, inspecting the water supply and says, don't be afraid of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. But Ahaz has no intention of turning to God, no intention of trusting the Lord. He has put his trust in man, in Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, who calls himself the king of kings, Ahaz has sold out the people of God. He has disregarded the prophets. He has disregarded the prophecies, and he has turned to man. But God gives a sign because God never betrays his people, but always keeps his word and encourages his people in the darkest of times. He offers to confirm victory with this sign that was offered Ask anything from the heights to the depths, anything you want, whatever you will, just ask of me and I will give you a sign. But in verse 14, he does not offer a sign. He gives a sign. He doesn't offer this to Ahaz, he gives it to the house of David. Verse 11, the singular pronoun is used to address Ahaz. In verse 14, the pronoun is plural. He gives it, he tells us, to the house of David. He gives the sign. 
And so Isaiah proclaims to the house of David that God will indeed provide a sign, and the purpose of the sign is that they hear his divine promise that David's line will be sustained, that David's line will be confirmed. In other words, the Messiah is going to come. And of course, that sign is in verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, what is of fundamental importance at this moment as we think about this promise to remember is that it is not the when, but the that of the sign that God says with certainty that a birth will come that confirms the Davidic line. That means that all leading up to this, all that is about to happen from Syria and from the northern kingdom of Israel, all is safe because all is in the sovereign hands of God. And people of God, that truth is forever. That truth, no truth changes. That truth is a truth upon which you can bank in your Christian life and upon which the church of Jesus Christ can count. It has not changed. God had made a promise in 2 Samuel 7 to David's house. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now let's learn from this. Whether it is Israel, the northern kingdom, whether it is Syria or any other nation, or a compromised king such as King Ahaz, nothing can, nothing will alter God's plan and purpose to redeem his own. Is the situation hopeless as this coalition of strong nations gathers under Satan's instigation to destroy the house of David? I ask you, what are the nations to God? who says in Isaiah 40, verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Can man thwart the purpose and plan of God? Hear Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Now, I cannot tell you, as I was restudying this passage, thinking through its intricacies, determining how to bring the message to you and to preach this truth, I cannot tell you how my heart leapt within me as I reconsidered this truth that is found here of God's purpose, his plan to redeem his own, and how nothing, nothing can hinder that plan. And I remembered A.W. Pink on the sovereignty of God. I remembered how it began, and I pulled his book off the shelf, and this is how he began his book. Who is regulating affairs on this earth today, God or the devil? And he rightly in this book warns of degrading conceptions of God that exclude God from the realm of human affairs. And we must mold our thinking and how we feel about these matters by the word of God and not by what we can see. We walk by faith and not by sight. 
We need to mold how we think of these things in terms of biblical conceptions. We need to turn to such passages as Ephesians 1.11 that speaks of the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And so God is not alarmed. God is not shaken in the least. God is not surprised. This is the God who in Isaiah 55 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And Pink said this, present-day conditions. He wrote this about 1918, First World War. You know the circumstances in the nation and in the world at that time. He said, present-day conditions call loudly for a new examination, a new presentation of God's omnipotency, God's sufficiency, God's sovereignty. From every pulpit in the land, it needs to be thundered forth that God still reigns. Faith is now in the crucible. It is being tested by fire, and there is no fixed and sufficient resting place for the heart and mind, but in the throne of God. There is no sufficient resting place for the heart and mind, but in the throne of God, resting upon His Word, His truth, what He has revealed. Now, that's a truth that we need to take with us today. And all of life and the dominating truth in this text, as God confirms the promise that He will See to it that David's line survives, indeed, that David's greater son is coming, this virgin-born Messiah. Well, he gives a sign. That's in verse 14. So now let's turn to the sign. That's the second thing, the sign of God's promise. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin. Notice the definite article, by the way, the virgin. That's in the Hebrew. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Ahaz rejected the sign. God gives the sign to Judah and to the house of David. And here it is in verse 14. And he begins with behold, which essentially means be amazed. Hear this with amazement. And he speaks as if the birth is imminent. This is prophetic imminence. The prophets often did this. The prophet's way of expressing the certainty of the birth, the certain fulfillment of the sign that he is bringing to his people. And God gives a supernatural sign. It is not going to be a normal conception. It is a supernatural conception. The sign points to the promise that the line of David will continue and more than that, a virgin of David's line will give birth. Now, the word here that is used for virgin is the word Alma. And if you read critical writings on this, uh, they have a field day. It's typical for them to have a field day trying to say that this is simply a young maiden, not a virgin. All one has to do is take the word and see how it's used in Scripture to see that that is simply not the case. It is a young woman, it is a maiden, but it is a virtuous unmarried woman, hence a virgin. And that is why when the Greek translation of this text in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is made, it uses the term parthenos, which is virgin. That's why when we come to Luke and it speaks of the virgin birth, it uses the term parthenos. 
And that's why in the passage that Pastor McDonald read for us this morning in Matthew chapter 1, it speaks of the virgin, it speaks of Parthenos, and it actually quotes, cites this passage that we are looking at this morning. Michael Barrett says, Alma is the only word in the Old Testament that without further definition or qualification, in other words, um, for example, adding, and she knew not a man, that would be a further qualification. Alma is the only word in the Old Testament that without further definition or qualification refers to a virgin in the strictest sense of the word. And so every time the word is used, it means a young woman of marriageable age and in every instance assumes the sexual purity of the girl. The term universally in the Old Testament means virgin. Another Old Testament scholar with whom many of you are familiar, O. Palmer Robertson, simply says this, only the same unbelief that marred the response of King Ahaz to the message of the prophet will rationalize away the wonder of this word, virgin. So it comes down to this, do we, do you believe the word of God? Do you rely on the promises of God? Is the attitude of Ahaz too much with us? And so you might ask, well, how does this address the present emergency, this virgin birth that is promised here? Well, it tells us that God is going to work supernaturally to maintain David's line, and this is the very thing that was at stake. And the king that shall sit on David's throne is Emmanuel, God with us, which leads us to think about that word, that name, that title. This is the third thing, the title, Emmanuel. Now, it's a name in the sense of a title, a description of the virgin-born child. Emmanuel, God with us. That is used here in verse 14. Again in verse 8, speaking of the land as Emmanuel's land, again in verse 10. He is the divine Messiah. It speaks of his humanity and his deity. This becomes more clear, of course, as more revelation was given, as the birth takes place, as we have the Gospels and we have the epistles to help us understand. This prophecy is of the divine Messiah. It promises the incarnation of our Lord. Now, small children who are here, I usually say at Christmas time to remember the word incarnation means enfleshment, coming in the flesh coming in a body, if you will, becoming human, assuming human nature. Parents, help them to understand this. If your mother makes chili con carne, it is chili with meat, all right? It's flesh. And so when we speak of the incarnation of our Lord, please, it is not reincarnation. That's a pagan concept. Incarnation means God becomes man. That is what is promised in this passage. God is always present with his people. There is an Emmanuel principle that we see in the word of God where constantly he expresses how he is with his people to give comfort, to give life, to give sustenance, to give guidance, to show love. Yes, but in this miraculous way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that is what Emmanuel means. And that is why it is quoted in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Name means character. This is who he really was, this coming Messiah. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And this, of course, leads to additional names. 
so that we turn in the book of Emmanuel to the ninth chapter and we find that he's wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. We'll look there, Lord willing, next week. And then there's further development of the name so that if you look at chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And that's another way of describing the Messiah. And then if we were to turn, as we will hopefully on Christmas Eve morning, to Micah chapter 5, verse 3, following verse 2 that speaks of the birth in Bethlehem, chapter 5, verse 3, is another unfolding of what it means that this reference in verse 14 is to Emmanuel, God with us. Let me ask you something. As you read your Bible and you read Isaiah, You remember chapter 6 and how crucial that chapter is? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and exalted, and His train filled the temple where He was sitting. You remember how how the heavenly beings had to to cover their faces in, in view of His holiness, and you remember that He calls Isaiah to the prophetic office. Who is this that Isaiah saw? Well, you say he was Jehovah. He is God, the creator. He is the God who is. Yes, that is absolutely true. But on your own, turn later to the 12th chapter of John's gospel, and you will find that it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 6. And it says in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And if you trace back the antecedent of the pronoun, his and him, you will see it's, refer- it's referencing Christ. Who, 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 what, what person of the Trinity did he have a vision of when he saw the king exalted in the sixth chapter of Isaiah? It was Christ. Calvin says God never revealed himself to the fathers but in His eternal Word and only begotten Son. I think he's absolutely right about that. All references to God's appearance in the Old Testament were pre-incarnate Christophanies, appearance of Christ before Christ was born. And so, you see, we can move from Isaiah 6, where there is Christ, to chapter 7, verse 14, where there is Christ, to chapters 9 and 11, where there is Christ, and all the way to chapter 53, about His death, and Micah 5, 2, and 3, this expansion upon Isaiah 7, 14, because the prophets saw Christ. They reveled in, in prophesying of the Messiah that would come. And distress, Isaiah 7.14 indicates the deity and humanity of Christ. He is God, the same God that was seen in Isaiah 6. He is God with us, with us as we know, through incarnation, through enfleshment. Now in verse 15, the food of poverty, Emmanuel will share in the poverty of his people, Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. 
He came in utter humiliation to be our Redeemer and our Savior. And before the child shall reach the age of discretion, the exile will have taken place, and the only hope for David's house, the only hope for David's house is supplied for us in 714, the virgin-born Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. And he is still the only hope for sinners. He is still the only hope for salvation. It is found in none other, no philosophy, no world religion. It is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Now, had we time, the prophecy continues in basically verses 17 through chapter 8, verse 22. Ahaz delivered Judah into the hands of Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. He destroyed the northern kingdom, Samaria. He carried away, of course, the, the ten tribes, and all of this is prophesied. Four times in Isaiah's lifetime, Judah itself is overrun. And so with a sad state of affairs, it is clear that God himself must intervene to establish his kingdom, and only he can do that. And then when you turn to the ninth chapter and you read those glorious names of the Messiah, what do we read about the government, the rule, the kingship, God's promise that he will sustain the house of David? We read in verse 7 of chapter 9 of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. <laughs> will do this. No maybes, no possibility. Maybe something will de derail God's purpose or plan. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to do it. And he did, and he is. Now, fourthly, we need to think about the fulfillment of Isaiah 14. J. Gresham Machen, in his truly remarkable book on the virgin birth of Christ, in which he's not dwelling on these passages, he's dwelling mainly upon the passages that we find in Luke's Gospel and, and Matthew. But nonetheless, he summarized this passage very beautifully when he said, I see a wonderful child. The prophet on this interpretation would say, a wonderful child whose birth shall bring salvation to his people and for such a period of time shall elapse as would lie between the conception of the child in his mother's womb and his coming to years of discretion, the land of Israel shall be forsaken. Now turn to Matthew chapter 1. This is one of those passages that speaks of fulfillment. We could certainly look at Luke and its references to the virgin birth. But the reason for turning to the passage that Pastor McDonald read for us this morning is simply because it references Isaiah 7.14. Let's look at the passage again. Beginning at verse 18, Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall, he will, save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so in verse 23, there's a quotation of Isaiah 14, in the context of which the angel is reassuring Joseph about receiving the pregnant Mary, who has conceived a child, not by a man, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no human father. Verse 22 tells us that this was the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14, which is cited, quoted for us in verse 23. Joseph then went on to marry Mary, and she remained a virgin until after the birth of Christ, verse 25 tells us. Matthew says that Isaiah 7:14 prophesied the birth of Jesus born of a virgin. And Matthew uses the term parthenos, which is the word, the Greek term for virgin, and cites Emmanuel, and there's a hena statement, a purpose statement in the Greek New Testament. The purpose of this, the purpose of fulfilling what Isaiah prophesied, the plerothe, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is the virginal conception and birth of Christ. And it is really likely that verses 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Though it could be by divine inspiration, something that Matthew added here, it is more likely the words of the angel who was speaking to Joseph and telling him these marvelous truths. Every year I fail. Every year I want, from the depths of my soul, that we can see something of the the grandeur, the majesty, the mystery, the wonder. What praise should be elicited from our hearts as we contemplate Christ coming into the world for our salvation. But who who can attain that goal? But we should strive, each of us. And so, this is what the Bible teaches, and it is the authority of the Bible that is at issue. One writer on Isaiah, it's published by Moody, I don't have the book, but I I read the, the quote somewhere. One author says, passages such as this text, he means Isaiah 7.14, Passages such as this text test whether one really accepts the Bible as the Word of God or not. 
Liberal interpretation wallows in a quagmire of immediacy. It must seek the complete explanation of the passage in the prophet's own day, and that in spite of the fact that the New Testament plainly declares otherwise. This is what God's Word says. Now, I want to bring you three things to think about in conclusion. Three things. The virgin birth of Christ has sometimes been presented as something about which we should be ashamed. It's not so important after all. It's not at the core of the gospel, it is claimed. Well, let me tell you, your pastor, your pastors, I am not, we are not ashamed of the supernatural. I am no more ashamed of the virgin birth of Christ than I am his bodily resurrection from the tomb. So as we conclude, I want to remind you of the significance of this wonderful prophecy. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Three things. First, supernaturalism. The significance of Isaiah 7.14 is supernaturalism. We certainly would expect that if God became flesh, his coming would be supernatural. It would be. How else could he come? In fact, Jesus' coming and the end of his ministry are bracketed by miracle. So that we have the miracle of the virginal conception of Jesus and his birth into this world, and we have at the end of his life the resurrection of Jesus after the cross and his ascension into heaven. His whole life and ministry on this earth were bracketed by miracle. And this is the heart of salvation. This is the difference between autosoterism, self-salvation, and monergism, salvation by grace alone through the power of God. It has to be one or the other. You know, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, whom I'm going to reference in a few moments, uh, as we think of the next, the next of the three things that I want to leave with you, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield was a professor at Old Princeton Seminary. He was one of my uh, most appreciated theologians in the history of the world. And he used to lean over his podium at Old Princeton lecturing to the men that were gonna, going to go into gospel ministry and he would say to them, brethren, I like the supernatural. Well, I'm your pastor leaning over this pulpit. Brothers and sisters, I like the supernatural. Why? I couldn't be saved any, any other way. My, my sin is so deep. I, I could only be saved by the supernatural intervention of God. Second thing, so he said the supernatural. Second thing. Isaiah 7.14 is important because of Christ and the incarnation, the deity of Christ, that he is God who became man, deity and incarnation. So we have here the two natures of Christ in one person, deity and humanity, that are perfectly united in Jesus Christ, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, as the Council of Chalcedon later would say. 
And this is part of what it meant that Jesus came and was aware of his messianic calling and his messianic mission. Gehurtus Voss says, no messiahship without deity. No consciousness of messiahship without consciousness of deity. He knew he was God in the flesh. He knew he was the messiah. He knew why he came. He knew what he had come to do. And so Jesus, the Son of God, becoming man, the second person of the Trinity, becoming man, we believe in the deity of Christ. We believe in the humanity of Christ. We believe that he is the God-man. Warfield made the statement, born into our race, he might be and was, but born, but born of our race, never, whether really or only apparently. There was no copulation involved. It was altogether the work of the Holy Spirit. And the third thing is this. His pure birth was necessary because of our impure birth. His pure birth was necessary because of our impure birth. There could be no sin nature in Christ. Warfield again. No one resting for himself under the curse of sin could atone for the sin of others. No one owing the law its extreme penalty for himself could pay this penalty for others. And so he comes into this world, the pure and spotless, holy Son of God, inheriting no sin nature, that he might be our Redeemer for those of us who were born and who every day exemplify original sin. The redemption, the redemptive work of the Son of God, says Warfield, depends upon his supernatural birth. And I believe that is absolutely correct. So do you see yourself to be a sinner? I'm not saying, would you say, yes, I'm a sinner, and yes, I sin. Do you see yourself? I'm talking about out of Christ, not knowing Christ. Someone here that does not know Christ, have you yet come to see yourself as defined by a heart that is in rebellion against God, a lawbreaker, a sinner, then you need this pure-born Savior to deal with your sin by obedience to the law that you broke and paying the penalty of sin, which only the virgin-born Savior could do. I've told you this, I don't know, probably four or five times. There was a young man that came to Moody, and he said, I cannot become a Christian because I do not believe in the virgin birth. And the response of the pastor was, well, young man, it's not the virgin birth that is troubling you. It is your sin. What is it? And the young man left angrily, and he came back that night, and he said, you're right. My difficulty is not really with a virgin birth, but with myself. And he trusted in Christ. And then the minister asked him, do you now want to discuss the virgin birth? And he said, no, I don't need to discuss the virgin birth. I have no problem with the virgin birth. What changed? Through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, his heart was opened and he saw himself to be a sinner in need. And when you see that you are a sinner 
you will have no problem with the supernatural, no problem with the miracles, no problem with the virgin birth, with the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the tomb, his ascension into heaven, because then you will see that you need a miraculous Savior to save you from your sin. You need, I need, the virgin-born Savior because of our unclean birth, because of our fall in Adam, because of original sin, because of our native and real depravity. And the marvel of it is, he can say to the uttermost, the uttermost, all who come to God by him. So again, I say to you, what is your sin? Deep, 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 deep sin, rebellion against God. God can forgive it. God can cleanse you. God can save that sinner who is captured in sin of deepest dye. Because Jesus, born of a virgin, obeyed the law, paid the penalty, rose from the dead. He can save. Come to him. Trust in him because he can save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. Is that you? I will tell you, it is me, and he has saved my soul for time and eternity. Amen and amen.